morning, Crosswalk. How are we doing? Oh, well, we have a couple back in the room that uh, have been away for a little while since they got married. Um, and so the volume in the room is going to go up. I appreciate um, some amens. But good to see you guys. I always am surprised. I always have this little just like I have no idea in the summer. Like who's going to come to church today? It's 93 degrees outside. We live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. People take vacations for pity's sakes. And then you come and you come and I'm, I just get so excited. So excited to see you here. Uh, I know we still have lots of people out traveling. Um, but thank you for coming and, and joining us for worship. Our hope and dream and prayer with, with this church, we're almost two years old, September 30. If you're in town, we're going to have a great time celebrating our two-year anniversary um, and, uh, and, and celebrating all that God has done. Uh, but our hope is that whether you're here for the first time or you're here for the 20th time, that when you walk in these doors, you feel loved and that you know this is a place that you can belong. So we're excited to have you here. I'm especially excited today. I've got some friends in the, in, in the room that I haven't seen in a long time, uh, especially friends that are over 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", 6'8", 6'9", 6'10". Um, and so Pastor Steve and my buddy Johnny and I are in the back and we're talking and we're all like eye level and it's amazing. Because <laughs> that just doesn't happen very often. Nothing against those of you that are vertically challenged. It's just nice. It's just nice. Amen. Amen. Uh, so anyway, glad you're here. We are in our fourth, fourth week of our series called The Little Letters where we are going through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John Letters that were written by the Apostle John who had been with Jesus, but now he is writing in his old age. In fact, some rumors say that the Apostle John lived to be 100, maybe 110 years old, um, but he is writing in the twilight of his life, and he is starting to think to himself, what is going to be my last gift to this movement, to the Jesus movement? What will John's legacy be? This is a question I think about from time to time. What will I leave behind for my friends and family and loved ones? Um, and as I thought about that, I came across a uh, video that went viral not long ago. Some of you I know have seen it because we talked about it. But it's a funeral of an Irishman. I don't know if you saw this, but in the video, well, what, what happened, the Irishman knew he was going to die apparently. He wanted to leave something behind for his family, something to be remembered by. And so in the video, there are people standing around his gravesite. He has been lowered in the casket into the grave. The bagpipes have played. And then suddenly, you hear his voice from beyond the grave. It apparently was a device that was inside of the coffin that a friend had a remote for that he hit play once it was down in the ground. And then people heard, hey, where am I? It's dark in here. Let me out. And his friends apparently knew him well enough to start laughing. And then the voice says, stop laughing at me. I'm not dead yet. Get me out of this coffin. This was his legacy to his friends that he recorded before he died. I love this idea. So when it comes time, please come to my funeral. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be a blast. I actually had a, there's a couple uh, that often come that, uh, to Crosswalk. It was my first wedding that I ever did. It was in uh, Walla Walla, the uh, fairgrounds there in Walla Walla. And it was a super country western wedding. 
So much so that she came in in a horse and buggy. They were both wearing cowboy boots and hats and the full works. And because I knew it was going to be very country western, I worked into the homily 17 song titles to country western songs. It's actually really easy when you do a search. Like, it makes total sense. But the grandfather of the bride came up to me afterwards, and he was laughing before he started talking to me. And he said, man, do you do funerals? <laughs> I was like, well, I, I mean, I've, I've done funerals. Yeah, he's like, man, I want you to do my funeral, man, because I just want people to laugh at my funeral. And I, was, I didn't know how to respond. I've never had that question. Um, and I said, do you want me to pencil you in? I don't, <laughs> I don't really know how to make that work. So, anyway, back to this. John is thinking about his legacy. He's thinking about what will be left behind when he leaves. He had firsthand experience with Jesus, the last one of the disciples that was alive. And so what he leaves behind is super important for the future of this Jesus movement. And he was writing in a time that is not unlike our own, where people were struggling with a picture of God. Who was God really, was the question they were asking. This God of Israel, or Yahweh, who actually is he? They had all these pictures from their, uh, from the culture around them where they were wondering about who God was based on the gods of the polytheistic culture that they were surrounded by, but they were also wondering about who God was based on the theology of the Old Testament and how they understood who God was in that time. So they asked questions that we ask today. Was God angry? Was he vengeful? Was he unfair? Is God indifferent, an impersonal being that really doesn't have much to do with our day-to-day -day lives? Was God powerful or weak, loving or cold, filled with joy or filled with wrath? Who was God really? John tries to answer that question once and for all because John knows the incredible danger of when we get the picture wrong. Authors Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch reflect on this in their book, Read Jesus, when they say, if NASA was even .05 degrees off in launching a rocket to the moon, they would miss the moon by thousands of miles. If they were off by just .05, and they say the same thing is true in our picture of God, if we're off by just .05%, the outcome is disastrous. They say that when Jesus isn't central to our theology, our identity, and our mission, disastrous things happen in the name of Jesus. As we continue in chapter 4 of 1 John this week, we see John addressing the issue of who God really is. So listen to the language he uses. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. John isn't being ambiguous here. He's being very direct and very to the point. In fact, in 14 verses, he uses the Greek word for love, for divine love. He uses that word 28 times in 14 verses, both to describe God and an outcome for us of following God. 28 times in 14 verses. You think John is trying to make a point? But why is it so important to John that we get this right? 
In Dr. Timothy Jennings' book, A God-Shaped Brain, he cites numerous studies that have found that if you picture God to be a loving and forgiving God, then you will become a loving and forgiving person that is more open to dialoguing with people who have different views than you do, okay? Whereas if you view God as being angry or violent, then studies suggest you are more rigid in your views and more inclined to violence, hatred, or anger yourself. What's interesting is that in the Christian story, in the early church, you didn't have Christians going off to war. You didn't have Christians carrying weapons and and things and, and battling and being in war. That didn't happen until Christianity became the religion of the state. Once Christianity became the religion of the state, then you could go off to war in the name of Jesus. Before that, it was a pacifist movement. Gregory Boyd writes in his book, Cross Vision, that it's impossible to exaggerate the importance of a believer's mental representation of God. For the way you imagine God largely determines the quality of your your relationship with God. And not only with God, I would add in your relationship with other people as well. Have you ever noticed that when people walk away from church, they often walk away from church because someone has given them a bad picture of who God really is, a picture that they can't reconcile with the God of love. And so they walk away because we, as followers of Jesus, have given them an inaccurate picture of who God really is. All this is to say that it matters how we see God because it influences the kind of people we become and the kind of communities we create. It's important. Our picture of God determines if people will find our way of life attractive or not. John witnesses to this because he has seen God up close and personal. Before his time on earth is done, John wants people to know exactly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, who God really is. Because if we get it wrong, if God isn't love, then we become some pretty awful people. As an example, here is a prayer that was shared from a church pulpit about 60 years ago. The prayer reads, O God, our heavenly guide, As finite creatures of time and as dependent creatures of thine, we acknowledge thee as our sovereign Lord. May we forever have the courage of our convictions that we may always stand for thee. Bless us now in this assembly that we may honor thee in all things. We pray in the name of Christ, our blessed Savior. Amen. Now, just reading through that prayer, you probably wouldn't find anything wrong with it. We'll probably agree with most everything there. But shortly after this prayer was offered on June 7, 1964, the imperial wizard of the KKK of Mississippi took to the same pulpit and declared a holy war on the civil rights movement. And within three months, three of the civil rights movement leaders were captured and executed. They claimed to believe in God. They called themselves Christians. And they prayed in the name of Jesus. Then they invoked that same name as they slaughtered those that they considered inferior to them. Sadly, this is not a unique story. Holy wars have existed for thousands of years, and the concept of killing in the name of Jesus is one of the reasons people give for not believing in God today. So John writes the truth from what he has seen and heard and experienced firsthand. Dear friends, Let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. John is clear. 
God is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. And everything he does comes from love. So the proof to the world that we know this God, that we walk with this God, that we serve this God, is how we love one another. We shared a couple of weeks ago as a part of this series um, the quote, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. I doubt he sent you. But for far too many, love is not the first thing we think of when we think of God. For too many, we struggle to see God as the father who goes chasing after the prodigal son, or the shepherd who goes in search of the lost sheep, or the son of a carpenter who dies on a cross. Maybe we have too often seen him as the father who is constantly disappointed in our choices, or the angry God ready to zap us for our sin, or the omnipotent being disgusted with anything less than perfection. I don't know about you, but for much of my life, the pictures I saw of Jesus portrayed him as emotionless, stoic, and serious all the time. These pictures obviously informed how I approached Jesus and God. Reverent, yes, but distant and cold. So here are a few. You'll recognize these pictures. Um, This is one of the oldest pictures of Jesus, actually. Um, Again, just, you know, no real expression uh, there, just kind of a stoic look. And then there's a couple of famous ones. This is Jesus coming out of the tomb. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been killed and resurrected... I might look a little more excited than that particular picture does. Um, Here's a famous one in the Adventist faith tradition. We know this one. I stand at the door and knock. But again, is he hoping you're home? Is he hoping you won't answer so he can go and do whatever he has next on his schedule? I'm not really sure. Um, But then... A few things happened that helped me paint a different picture of who I saw Jesus to be. One, my youth pastor at the time, a one Don Keel Jr., I mention him because some of you know uh, Pastor Don, he was the one that helped me open up to God on my own terms and be myself to God for the first time in my life. For some reason, I felt like I couldn't approach this God with all of me. But Don helped me realize that I could share my doubts, my fears, my frustrations with him. And I remember really well that first time I cut loose on God. I was in a time of just unanswered prayers and frustrating things happening in my life. I thought I was doing all the right things, but nothing was going my way. I was actually driving down I-5 just before I got to the bridge crossing over into Portland. And I just let God have it. I was angry, I was upset, I was yelling, all 195 pounds of me versus all the universe of him, okay? And my face was red, I was shouting, my arms were flailing around. At one point I looked over, I saw a car full of people who was driving next to me watching this happen. And this was back before you had Bluetooth on your car and you could fake that you were on the phone, okay? Um, But... God and I had this encounter, and after that, we became closer than I had ever been before because I finally was just myself to God. I felt I could argue, I could share my frustrations, and that was okay because God was bigger than all that stuff. So that was episode one. Episode two came not long after this when I came across a picture of Jesus called the Laughing Jesus, which is the next picture. Um, This was actually created in 1970, and it was called Christ the Liberator, but it became known as the Laughing Jesus. And not much is known about the artist, 
um, or the original intent behind its creation, but it impacted many hearts and lives ever since because it imagined a Jesus that wasn't stoic or cold or lifeless, but full of joy. This was a Jesus I could interact with differently. And then shortly after I stumbled upon this painting, there started to be new portrayals of Jesus in, in movies, like this one from the Matthew videos. This one had Jesus who was almost always smiling, not a fake smile, but a smile that was, he was just warm and people liked to be around him. When it says that the children were excited to be around Jesus, you think children are excited to be around people that never smile? And so Jesus was portrayed as a smile. The Chosen series has continued this with this kind of a picture of Jesus that it can actually laugh and enjoy life. But then for me, the final nail in the coffin of my previous pictures of God came uh, from a place not far from here. And I know I sh I've shared this story with some of you because it marked my life in so many different ways. But it was a me in a meeting room in Gladstone, Oregon. I was in college um, and I was sitting in a room full of pastors. And if you have never sat in a room full of pastors before, it is not very fun. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> ah, that's not funny. Um, and we're sitting in this room, right? And I just feel out of place. You know, I don't have the training. I don't have the background. I don't have the pedigree. I'm not wearing a tie. I'm not in a suit. Um, you know, so I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing there. And they decided for the weekend that they were going to focus on youth ministry. And they brought in someone by the name, and some of you will know this, by the name of Mike Iaconelli. And Mike Iaconelli, they introduced him as, he wasn't from the Adventist faith tradition, but they introduced him as uh, the leader and founder of the largest youth ministry organization in the world. That Mike had been serving and leading youth to Christ for 40 years. And even though his methods were unconventional to say the least, um, they, they worked and impacted hundreds of thousands of lives. And Mike walks in, and he's got baggy jeans, he's got a t-shirt, his hair's a little all over the place, and I'm thinking, this guy doesn't look like he fits in either. And then he gets up and he says, now, um, uh, I want to thank you for inviting me to come and hang out th this weekend with all of you weird Adventists. He said that, he said, because he said, you don't serve meat, and you don't drink caffeine, what's going on? Um, and, and then he said, but if we're going to spend the weekend talking about youth ministry, the first thing we have to do is remember what it's like to be one. And then he jumped out from behind the pulpit with the largest Nerf gun I have ever seen in my life. And he started firing it at all those guys in suits on the front row. And they had no idea what to do. They're like, what, who, who is it? What's happening? And they didn't know. And then when he's done, they were ready to show him the door. And then Mike says, there are 40 more guns like this hiding in this room. Go find them and play. And they were ready. They were like, we're not going to have anything to do with this until the younger ones found the guns and started fighting and shooting at each other and dodging bullets like the Matrix, you know, we're doing this kind of thing. And, and like if the next bullet was going to be the end of us, I mean, we laughed and played for two hours. It was incredible. And of course, after that, I hung on every word that Mike had to say. Every picture of Jesus to me connected with my heart so much. And when I listened to him and I watched him, I started to think for the first time in my life, I started to think, you know what, maybe... Maybe if, if God is a God I can laugh with and play with and enjoy, and if ministry is something I can do in my own skin, maybe, just maybe, I could give this pastoring thing a try. Maybe, just maybe, I could serve a God who is for me and wants me to enjoy life instead of a God who is out to get me. 
My picture of God began to change through those events and many more since then. And the joy I have is a joy that no one can steal away from me. And it doesn't mean I don't have seasons that are tough. It doesn't mean I, get, I don't get discouraged anymore. But what it does mean is that when those moments happen, I can more easily fall back into the arms of God's grace because I know and believe in a God who is actually trying to save me, not a God that is trying to keep me out. I serve a God who actually loves me and is for me and is on my side instead of a God that is waiting for me to fail. That was different for me. It changed everything for me. And so I believe, as I think John did as well, that if you and I can get a better, more biblical, more Christ-centric picture of who God is and how he feels about us, then we don't have to recruit people to go and do evangelism. Okay? I, I know this is a thing for me, but... Like, we have to force people to do evangelism partly because we don't have a good picture of who God is. So we get you to sign up and come to 20 meetings a night. And there are people, look, there are people that come to know God through that. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But if we spent more time on getting a better picture of who God is, maybe it would just happen by the way we live our lives and the things we do. Maybe, just maybe, people would see how well we love others, and they would say, I want to learn more about that. And we say, come to our church, check it out, because here at Crosswalk, we love really well. That's our mission statement, that's our vision statement, because Jesus said, this is how all people will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. I'll give you a really simple illustration that falls way short of the God reality, um, but but maybe some of you will connect with it. I was with a group of my closest friends, and we all didn't live in Portland, but we had come to Portland just to spend a few days together. And it was then that I went to Blue Star Donuts for the first time. Yes. We all stood in the line and looked at all these beautiful creations, and we thought, how do we choose? And so we decided, well, everybody's going to get a different one, and then we're going to cut them up, and we're going to all share. And then for the next 10 minutes... None of us said a word in English. It was just a lot of, oh, 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 right? And after that moment, no one had to tell me to go and tell other people about Blue Star Donuts. No one had to say, hey, you know what? You should, you should go and help evangelize for Blue Star. I told people freely because I had tasted the manna that had come from heaven, and it was good. And I know I've told some of you this before, but I, when I was chaplain at Walla Walla, I took a few dozen of these donuts to uh, the nursing campus, the Walla Walla University nursing campus. And mind you, a few dozen, yes, thank you, Zachary, a few dozen uh, donuts at Blue Star cost $4.2 million. <laughs> and I <laughs> see, it was a lot. Um, but I, I took them, and I set them out, and as they were coming into chapel, they're all taking one, and this, this guy comes up, and he'd never been to Blue Star before, and he takes, he takes a bite of a donut, and he throws it in the trash. He almost died that day. And it was the first time that I ever thought about reaching into the garbage can and getting out something and eat it. You don't throw that away. Anyway, he had a come to Jesus moment and we, 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 we became friends after that, kind of. Um, so the question is, what is your picture of God? What's interesting is that in the Old Testament, you will not find any descriptions of a picture of God. You won't find uh, any idols that were created of God. There's no forms of any kind, no statues or anything, which was very odd in their culture. Because every other 
people group had images of their gods. And we see that when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and captured Jerusalem. He did the first thing that kings do. They go into the temple to rob them of their images of their gods. But he couldn't find an image of the Israel, Israelite God. This was strange and unusual until you get to the New Testament where we read, so the word God became flesh and made his home among us. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Our picture of God matters so much because it informs the kind of people we become. It shapes whether we are joyless or joyful, whether we are afraid or bold, whether we love with open doors or judge with crossed arms. And John speaks to this when he says, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God is seen. And John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, closes chapter 4 with these words. He says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. He is using some strong language. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. By their fruits, you will know the kind of God someone follows. You can often tell when you walk into a church building the kind of God that the people there believe in. But there's one more critical truth that we must also accept beyond just the picture of God as a God of love. And maybe this is even harder. Not only is God a God of love, but he actually loves you. He loves all of you. All of your mistakes, all of your scars, all of your wounds, all of your joys, all of your sorrows. He loves all of you. Author Brennan Manning once said that he believed when we get to heaven, that God will have one question for us. And that question is, did you believe that I loved you? That's it. Karl Barth, a highly acclaimed 20th century theologian who wrote countless books on the New Testament, highly intelligent, spent his entire life studying theology When at the end of his life, in his twilight years, he was asked if he could sum up all that he had learned about God, what would he say? And Bart simply said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. John knows the most important, life-altering thing for any of us to know is not a creed, it's not 28 fundamental beliefs, it's not the correct interpretation of the 2300-day prophecy, not saying those things don't have their place or don't have any importance, but the most important truth for any of us to know since the world began is simply this. God is love, and he loves you, and he loves your neighbor, the one you like and the one you don't like. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in his famous passage on love when he says, and I'll paraphrase, if you can speak all the languages in heaven and earth, or you can predict the future or know all of God's plans and possess all the knowledge there is to know, or if your faith was so strong you could literally move mountains, or you gave all your possessions to the poor and sacrificed your body for the good of others, but you don't have love, love for God and love for others, then you have absolutely nothing, zip, zilch, 
nada. No legacy, no reputation, nothing of significance. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. And all we need is love. But not the earthly, superficial kind of love. The kind of love that is transformative. The kind of love that is healing. The kind of love that is other-centered. The kind of love that is willing to lay one's life down for even their enemies. An irresistible love where we can't help but share with others. The Apostle John met God on the shores of Galilee. And for the next three and a half years, the Apostle John watched this God do and say things that no one else ever did or said. And then the Apostle John watched this God die on a cross to save us all. John wants to make sure that you know beyond any shadow of any doubt that God is love and that God loves you. Friends, let us love one another for love comes from God for God is love and when we live in love, we live in God. If we could do just this, as John told his congregation in Ephesus many, many times, if we could just do this, love one another as he loves us. If we could just do that, we could help the world see God more clearly. This is what it means for us to love well. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so loving beyond anything we can possibly imagine. The apostle prayed that you would strengthen us in our inner being that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and established in love and then have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love and that we would know this love that surpasses our natural abilities to know, that we would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. So may we come to see the God of grace and the God of love that is on our side and may we go from this place and live with joy and live with love and laugh and make the most of this life that you died to give us so that other people can come to know the God who is love. We pray these things in the precious and holy and powerful and beautiful and love-filled name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We pray, amen. Amen.